Welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's Capitol Hill briefing. Um, this is the Globalization and the World's Rising Living Standards Cato Capitol Hill briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman. I'm the manager of government affairs for the Cato Institute. Uh, before we get started with today's presentation, I'd like to take care of a couple of quick housekeeping things. First of all, if you're not already familiar, the Cato Handbook on Policy is a comprehensive guide to what the Cato Institute scholars um, think the proper role of government and policymakers should be in addressing a myriad variety of issues, anything from foreign policy to social security reform to uh, civil liberties and energy policy and indeed trade and globalization. Um, if you'd like a copy, see me afterwards and I'd be happy to uh, get a copy to you. Also, um, if you can't wait to find out what's going on at the Cato Institute, we have a product called Cato Today, and it's a daily e-newsletter that uh, sends you the most recent op-eds, um, blog posts, um, podcasts, weekly videos, etc. Um, so we get that out every morning, and uh, if you'd like to sign up for that, we have a sign-up sheet on the registration table. And there's also some information out there, uh, some writings by our guest today. Um, Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a writer who focuses on globalization, entrepreneurship, and individual liberty. Norberg is the author and editor of several books ex exploring liberal themes, including a history of liberal pioneers in Swedish history. I should note that when Mr. Norberg and other non-Americans use the word liberal, uh, they don't mean what most Americans think of as liberal. Uh, American liberalism is not at all liberal in the classic sense, uh, but is rather socialist. Uh, liberal in the rest of the world means something approaching libertarian or encompassing a value set that places liberty as a paramount virtue. You might also call it the free market. Uh, his book, In Defense of Global Capitalism, originally published in, Swede in Swedish in 2001, has since been published in over 20 different countries. He's also the author of, and these are the English translations, uh, When Mankind Created the World, the co-author of Another Sweden is Possible and Global Justice is Possible, and the co-editor of The Classics of Freedom, all of which are available only in Swedish at this time. So it gives you another project. You should learn Swedish and read these books. Um, he has a lot of information as well on his personal website, which is www.johannorberg.net. Uh, Norberg's articles and opinion pieces appear regularly in both Swedish and international newspapers, and he is a regular commentator and contributor on television and radio around the world discussing globalization and free trade. Prior to joining Cato, Norberg was head of political ideas at Timbro, a Swedish free market think tank from 2003 to 2005. He then served as senior fellow for the Brussels-based Center for a New Europe during 2006. Norberg received his master's degree from Stockholm University in the History of Ideas. Mr. Norberg. Thank you. So, thank you. So speaking of globalization, yes, I, I'm a Swede, and I live in Stockholm, Sweden, but I work for the Cato Institute here in Washington. So... Um, some sort of telecommuting. Um, so that gives me a particular perspective on globalization. If it's uh, a biased one or if it just deepens my understanding of this process, well, you'll be the judge of that. 
I couldn't resist the temptation to show you this postcard that I was given after a lecture on globalization in Moscow, after a couple of uh, anti-globalists uh, explained that it's not enough to oppose globalization. These aliens on their flying saucer here, they say that it's time to stop galactification and universalization as well. There's been a lot of hectic and emotional uh, discussions and when it comes to the globalization and the trade debate in the last few years. But um, as the economist Stanley Fisher pointed out when he summarized the debate a couple of, of years ago, he noted that the key issue, the key issue seemed to relate not to differences of values, but to different interpretations of facts. And the major difference of opinion is, is the world becoming a better or a worse place? And in what areas, in which places, and how do our policies affect that? This is something that the Swedish government wanted to find out quite recently. A new center-right government, uh, center government was elected in September 2006, and immediately they created a globalization council, supposed to run for a couple of years, and with the goal, the mission, trying to find out how is globalization affecting our world, how is it affecting Sweden, and how is it affecting the rest of the world. And basically, what are the facts the, that Stanley Fisher talked about? And the first report commissioned by this council and published was a report by me on the world's living standards, generally. An attempt to try to find out in different areas of life what has happened during these last few decades. In a report called uh, Four Decades That Changed the Planet, I tried to look at living standards from... Well, the different uh, angles that we can try to measure, ranging, well, in four different spheres, basically. One, about wealth, about income, about working conditions, about uh, wages and, and things like that. The second one, about health, about um, access to health care, infant mortality rates, life expectancy. A third one, about opportunities in life, education, women's rights, fertility, things like that. And the fourth one, societal factors, like environmental concerns, like the risk of um, having to um, participate in a war, the risks of terrorism, risks of dictatorship, not having political rights, and so on. So that's what I've done, and I would like to present here basically the facts, the findings, in a very extremely brief version. If you're really interested, you would have to go to my um, website and, and find uh, more about this, but just to give you some, some clues of what I found. And afterwards, I'd like to talk about the causes, the potential causes of these trends. And the third and last aspect is that I would like to give a few brief policy implications from this. So what's the general idea? What is happening in the world? If you go to the United Nations Development Program, you see that in one of their latest human development reports, they say that the overall report card on progress makes for depressing reading. And try to remember that sentence. Well, you might even write it down if you're interested, because that's going to be a classic. That'll be just as classic, I think, as uh, statements like, uh, I think there's a world market for potentially, well, five computers, or guitar music is on its way out, so there's no need for our record label to sign up 
the Beatles and things like that. Because if you really look at the statistics, and what I look at is the information from the United Nations, the United Nations Development Program, the World Bank, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, and so on. You see a general trends that very much contradicts what they say, at least on the first pages of the report. If we start with wealth, we can see that we are living right now in a fairly unique era in in, uh, in the world economy. This is the world income, GDP, per capita around the world in the last 2,000 years. According to the OECD estimates of Angus Madison, well, there's some uh, guesswork that has to be done in the first uh, few hundred years uh, here, obviously. But what we can see is that not much happened in the first 1,800 years of, of, in this graph. But then... In the last 200 years, something quite dramatic happened, and especially in the last 100 years, when we've created more, much, much more wealth than in the 100,000 years before that, because of technological developments, because of integration of markets. And what we can see today is that it's even more dramatic today. About If we try to think of GDP per capita, average income per, per person around the world, as, as some sort of measure of the wealth that mankind has attained, well, in that case, 43% of all the wealth that has ever been created was created in the last 30 years. That's a quite dramatic, uh, quite dramatic 30 years in that case. Today, the average person around the world lives close to the level that the average American had, uh, the average American income, when John Kenneth Galbraith, the Economist explained that America is the affluent society and doesn't really need much more wealth. We should think about other concerns in our life. And what's more interesting, perhaps, when it comes to the discussion of globalization is that this growth, so far, we'll see what the mortgage crisis will, uh, will lead to, but so far it seems like the last few decades have meant a more stable trajectory for growth and a more widespread growth rates around the world. It used to be that some countries boomed whereas others were in deep depression. Now it seems much more, much more integrated. And that has effects for poverty around the world. The number of people who can consume for less than $1 a day, consume for less than $1 a day, adjusted for inflation, local prices, well, that's the number of people who are in extreme poverty according to the World Bank measurements. And throughout most of mankind's history, the big, big, large majority of the world's population lived in, in extreme poverty. But in the last 25 years, we've seen that extreme poverty has been cut in half. We've seen that extreme poverty in developing countries has been reduced by something like 76,000 people every day, which means more than 3,000 people are lifted out of extreme poverty every hour around the clock. There's been some new adjustments of the purchasing power rates of uh, different currencies by the World Bank quite recently, which shows that uh, they apparently overrated uh, the exchange rate of the Chinese currency and the Indian currency, which means that probably we would have to lift this graph up a bit. According to this one, it's been reduced from 40 to 20% of the world's population in 25 years. Uh, it's 
probably a bit higher than that. But what it also says is that the reduction in poverty in the last decades have been even greater than we think according to this graph. But we still don't have any precise figures on that. This is one of the reasons for this development. Illiteracy around the world is declining. It used to be an exception that someone could read around the world. Today it's beginning to be an exception that someone cannot read and write. From about 50% in the early 1970s that were illiterate, today it's about 20% of the developing world population that is illiterate. Hunger, we see a, a something similar. Chronic undernourishment, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization statistics, has been cut in half since the 1970s. And, and it's, the latest statistics show a prognosis that's optimistic. The last few notes until 2015 is also optimistic there. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case, since we've seen this dramatic in, increase in prices, in food prices around the world. It'll be very, very difficult for food importing countries in, in the next few years, partly because this is one area of the world economy that is not globalized at all. We see that only a small minority, a tiny minority of the food production is being consumed, produced, and traded across, across borders. There's not much of capability of investing in new crops, in irrigation systems in, in poor countries around the world. And that's partly because it hasn't been profitable for them to do that, because the United States, the European Union, Japan, and other rich countries have consistently had protectionist policies that ruined the opportunities for them to export previously. Um, today, it's more important than ever to, to do something about those policies, because it's not just wasting taxpayers' money's, money with all those subsidies. It's also directly uh, causing hunger around the world. Here is a, another way of looking at living standards. When wages increase, when the opportunity for exports and uh, production is being increased, well, many people predicted that in, when that happens, many parents will put their children to work. For example, if Vietnam has a booming ri rice industry, and it's, um, you can make a lot more money by producing there, many thought that the families would put their children to work. What we see around the world is that the opposite thing is happening. In middle-income countries, and that's the lowest uh, line there, it, child labor and the number of people under 14 years, of, between 10 and 14 years who work rather than going to school, have declined from 27% to 5% since 1960. And it has happened the fastest in the countries that have begun to integrate into the global economy, begin to export. So it means that parents... They do not try to maximize the income today. That, it, that doesn't seem to be the case. They try to maximize the long-term opportunities for their children to earn an even bigger uh, income in the future by giving them an education. As fast as parents do not put their children to work because they're mean to their children. They do it because they have to, because they, don't, they need the revenue, the income from the children. So with higher wages... With more trade opportunities, we see child labor being reduced around the world. This is an perhaps even more encouraging figure about infant mortality rates around the world. In low- and middle-income countries, it's the higher one. It's been reduced from 14% to less than 6% in the last 45 years, which means, and it's high-income countries, 
down there. And as you can see, this means that infant mortality rates, the number, the proportion of children who die in, the first, in their first year, is now in poor and middle-income countries close to what it was in the richest countries 50 years ago because of, well, generally more wealth, higher incomes, better education for the parents, uh, at least, especially for the women, for the mothers. We can see it's direct strong correlation uh, between, between the two things, those two things, and, but, but also technological developments, better, better access to health care, and electricity. Electricity is something you need so that you don't uh, cook your dinner by um, burning wood and biomass indoors, coal indoors, which is one of the main uh, causes of death for, for infants because they're poisoned indoors without ventilation, without windows, uh, or things like that. So electricity, there's been one study recently on Bangladesh which compares electrified well, villages with electricity with those without electricity. And you can see that if all those without electricity uh, got access to it, it would lead to... 100 fewer deaths of infants every day in Bangladesh because, because of, of that. Refrigerators, stoves, um, and, and so on. And that's one of the reasons why we can also see a graph like this when it comes to life expectancy. It's been increased by about 20 years in low- and middle-income countries in the last 45 years. Now, imagine what that means. It means that every, the average person in a low- and middle-income country have, has been able to celebrate every birthday by just approaching death by six months, not by 12 months. That's what has happened in the last 40, 50 years around uh, the world. And, and it's being increased, and in the richest countries as well, we can see something like that ha happening. If I speak here for one hour, your life expectancy will be increased by 15 minutes by the end of it. So you'll get, I'm not just wasting your time, I'm actually giving you something back. And I'll, I'll <laughs> if you give me a lot of questions during the Q&A, your life expectancy will increase even more. So that's something that's, that's, those are the major trends when it comes to health, wealth, opportunities in life for people around the world in these last few decades. Uh, I'll also like to give you a few glimpses of other things I look at in the, the report. <coughs> Many people would say that someone has to pay the, bear the burden of this, specifically the environment. Because obviously, when we start with industrial production in poor countries, we all, will also see more pollution uh, in, in those places. And that's, that's obviously true. But if we look at the try to integrate all kinds of environmental factors that has an effect on nature and on health, as has been done by the Environmental Performance Index, uh, constructed by different institutions at Yale and Columbia University, they find this very, very strong correlation uh, I don't know if you can see all the, the names of the tiny the dots, but what it says is that with GDP per capita, uh, the, the environmental performance increases as well. In other words, the burden on nature and health is being reduced on average, not when it comes to all sorts of pollutants, not when it comes to carbon dioxide, for example, which is being increased. But for example, indoor air pollution, uh, the major he uh, health and environmental problem around the world is something that is practically non-existent 
in, in industrialized countries because we have access to gas, electricity, and, and things like that. We don't have to burn things indoor. But also we've seen in the last few decades that rich countries, after the rise of the environmental movement in the 1970s, have begun to change their preferences and not just uh, accepted that it's wealth and nothing else. Uh, because uh, there's some sort of um, diminishing returns to that. We begin to think about the nature as well, and we develop the technologies that makes it possible for us to also make sure that we don't pollute the water and the air as much as we used to do. The problem around the world is that many poor countries do not, are not able to make that choice because they still have to make the trade-off between giving their children an education or, uh, or trying to save, save the planet. And here's another, uh, in a completely different area of life, the, we often hear that the world is becoming a less peaceful place. I actually just read it in Canadian uh, uh, journalist Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine. The world is becoming a less peaceful place and it's more war and terrorism going on. But if we look at an indicators such as battle deaths, the number of, of dead in wars from the Canadian Human Security Center that collects these this information, these statistics, we can see that say, uh, it varies a lot between the decades, but it's going down generally around the world. And since the early 90s, we've also seen a dramatic reduction in the number of military conflicts around the world. It's been reduced by half, something like that, since the early 1990s. We used to think of the Cold War 80s nowadays as sort of a stable time when we knew what was going on. Yes, we knew what was going on. People were killing one another at a much, much larger, to a much larger extent than they do today. So, so that's another indicator. And when it comes to terrorism, we used to see the same pattern. In, during the 90s, the number of terrorist incidents around the world and the number of, um, of, of um, casualty used to decline. It's increased dramatically in the last few years. But that's because of Iraq. Iraq and, uh, and parts of India, Pakistan. It's not, despite the, what we've, the instances we've seen, uh, it's not the case that we've seen a dramatic in, increase in terrorist activity around the world. We just pay much more concern uh, to it today than we used to do. So... If these, these are just some of the things that I, I looked at. Uh, and as I said, I can only offer you a brief glimpse here. We don't have to, the time to go into any, any more detail than that. But the broad picture is that some things around the world are actually moving in the right direction. We see that wealth, health, and security has been dramatically improved over these last few decades. So... How do we explain a sentence like this from the United Nations Development Program? The overall report card on progress makes for depressing reading. Well, we don't have to take their word for it, not on that page. We can move on 17 pages in the report and, and see a summary of the statistics they present, where the UNDP says... Looking back over the past decade, the long-run trend towards progress in human development has continued. On average, people born in a developing country today can anticipate being wealthier, healthier, and better educated than their parents' generation. They are also much more likely to live in a multi-party democracy and less likely to be affected by conflict. End of quote. 
It's the same report. It's the same UNDP. Might be different authors who sort of pen the drafts of, of these different chapters. But it shows one thing, and that's something that hasn't changed in these last few decades is the interest of different institutions, groups, and, um, and multilateral institutions like this to distort what's going on in order to make themselves more important, in order to attract more resources to the kind of things that they deal with. It's very interesting if you look at the UNDP report, the press statements all present a quite depressing version of what's going on in the world. If you look at the report and the statistics, it's quite optimistic. But they always pay attention to the problems, partly because they want funding, um, partly, I would guess, because we are like that. Good news is no news. Um, it's the dramatic, the shocking, the tragic that makes the headlines. That's what we pay attention to because we need to, and probably because our, the ancestors who did, they they were able to procreate and, and uh, give us a lot of stress in our, our genes. So, so that's something that goes on, and it's a good thing. It means that we continue to solve problems because we think of the problems that are out there. But the problem is also that it might give us a distorted view of what works to solve these problems because we begin to see some of those things. Now, I'll tell you something about that, but first of all, let me just give the UNDP the benefit of the doubt. There are some things that get worse, if I'm allowed to use that unscientific um, term here. Um, that just simply gets worse. Well, first of all, because those trends generally are encouraging, it doesn't mean that there's less of a tragedy being extremely poor, having to see your children die in their first year of life, just because the average trends are improving and beneficial around the world. Just because we've reduced extreme poverty by half, it doesn't make it less of a tragedy that one billion uh, still does. So it's good that we pay attention to those things. It's also the case that we've seen a uh, very uneven progress when it comes to this. It's, here's just the GDP per capita of uh, sub-Saharan Africa and East Asia since 1975, where we can see the place with the most, the region with the most dramatic progress, East Asia and sub-Saharan Africa that actually where the average person grew poorer in these 30 years. And, um, and that doesn't show the whole picture. We've also got the health disaster with HIV, AIDS, with the uh, malaria, tuberculosis coming back, which has meant that some African countries have seen their life expectancy being more dramatically reduced than France did under the First World War. So just because the average is beneficial, there are huge problems out there. Even though we should mention that in this last decade, sub-Saharan Africa grew by 14% per capita, and that there are encouraging trends that, that there are things going on there as well. There are also some other more broader trends around the world where we can definitely see some problems um, that might be growing. First of all, there are some instances of mental health where we see and psychological problems where we can see uh, that definitely the statistics show increasing problems, a rise in clinical depression around the world, a much higher suicide rates in most countries, uh, middle and low-income countries around the world. Don't see the same thing in, in Western countries. Here we see the opposite. Uh, suicide rates have uh, really been dramatically reduced, partly because of antidepressants in the last 
decade, um, but, but it shows that perhaps there's something with modernization, very rapid modernization, that causes problems for people to, uh, to adapt to it. We also see uh, some environmental problems, even though, though we've solved some of them, we are solving some of them, some are also growing, and definitely this is the case for industrial um, environmental problems in poor countries, but also some other more global problems uh, around the world. Overfishing, depletion of, depletion of fishing. Uh, uh, around the world we see deforestation in many countries where people don't have the incentives to really uh, care for, for the forest in the long term. And we see, we still don't know what's going to be the consequences of, of global warming around the world. But these are some areas where we definitely have to look at what's going on. And we also see global risks, the rise of global risks. When we're more dependent on one another, well, we're also a bit more exposed to risks in other places. Recently in Nigeria, we saw that there was a lot of propaganda about the... Um, vaccination inoculation against polio was being branded as a conspiracy by Western powers to uh, destroy the, um, to sterilize women, which meant that uh, they stopped with these projects and suddenly, doesn't, didn't just happen in Nigeria, suddenly 20 countries uh, in the region suddenly had polio back. Uh, now there's been a lot of work to, to deal with that, but it shows that a one mistake somewhere can lead to big problems somewhere else. In Iceland recently, the internet connections didn't work. Turned out that rats in Scotland had eaten the fiber optical cables that uh, went up to, to Iceland. So, so those things are problematic. Uh, a, a flu a, could rapidly turn into a pandemic if we aren't careful with doing that. At the same time, our ways of responding to this are better than ever. Cooperation across the borders, uh, we have a technological level that means that we can deal with that, this you might remember SARS. This was in 2003. We were all thinking, might this be a new case of Spanish disease around the world? Well, it wasn't because the best brains around the world, in, in China, in Hong Kong, in Canada, in the U.S., rapidly responded to this and came up actually with a, a commercial uh, uh, test in just a few weeks after this. So it shows that we can do something about it. A Swedish expert on this field said, had SARS appeared in the early 1960s, 50 to 100 million people around the world would have died. So even though globalization creates new risks, it also makes it possible for us to cooperate to deal with those risks. But it all depends on our reaction. If for fear of what happens somewhere else, a terrorist stri group strikes or a disease somewhere, if that causes us to stop flying, trading across borders, that will cause much more human devastation and misery than the problem in itself does. So it's definitely an area where we have to pay serious attention. So some things get worse, but on the whole, average living standards are improving at a rapid pace. And why is that? Here are the fiber optical submarine cables that apparently uh, the rats uh, are are interested in that connects the world around us. Uh, this is an image of globalization today, how we connect the different continents. And to just give one way of thinking about this is to say that if Zimbabwe moved to Hungary, 
geographically, but kept the same kind of institutions and the same kind of, of, of problems in other cases, Zimbabwe would be twice as rich as it is today. In other words, proximity to markets, to knowledge, to people is of, utmost, is of essence. That's what creates a division of labor makes it possible for us to specialize, makes it possible for us to use the best knowledge, the best ideas, the best technology out there. Um, moving to Hungary would, would in one stroke, uh, double your, your average income like that. And if, if Robert Mugabe stayed in Zimbabwe, it would probably double again, I think. But that shows how globalization has an effect. What globalization does is moving places like Zimbabwe to Hungary connecting generally the world, making it possible for us to use the best knowledge, the best technology, the best workers out there, and to have a more advanced and specialized division of labor across the borders. And if that happens, we can also produce much, much more than we used to do. We can have a level of competition that means that companies and uh, scientists always feel the pressure to be a bit better for fear of not keeping it up. This is one way of looking at it. This is the GDP per capita of three different countries, England, Sweden, and China, in three different eras, in three different globalization and industrialization eras. It's England in the late 18th century, Sweden in the late 19th century, China in the late 20th century. And what we can see here is that it took England something like 70 years to double the average incomes. It's the blue one over there. Because England had, well, they could borrow some people and some technology from other European countries, but they had to do most of the things themselves. Sweden, 100 years later, in the purple one, could use the access to British markets, sell iron, um, forest, timber, paper there, could use the, the technological ideas, uh, the best methods of producing steel that made Sweden rich was a British invention, but we could use it because borders were fairly open, we could borrow money from England and France to build railways and other British invention. Because of this globalization in the late 19th century, it only took us a bit more than 30 years to double our income. Today, when China, when Vietnam, when India does the same, it's an even more globalized world. It's an even more higher technological level around the world, and it's even more possible to use those things and to double your income in a bit more than 10 years if you get the institutions right. That's one way of looking at, at globalization. Here is another one. Here is the difference in life expectancy between middle-income countries and low-income countries as compared to high-income countries. In 1960, people in rich countries lived 23 years longer than in middle-income countries. Today, we live only nine years longer. It's difficult to create new healthcare technologies. It's difficult to invent the mobile phone. But once it's there, it's fairly easy to use it somewhere else. So with opening of borders, with better communications, with more open markets, it's easy to get access to the things that makes it possible for you to increase health, increase life expectancy like that. Not just because we get richer, but primarily because the price of living standards is being reduced around the world. In 1950, a country that had an average income per capita of $300 had a life expectancy of 33 years. 
today if they have the same level of wealth and if they haven't moved up with the rest of us. They have 46 years. In other words, 13 years longer for the same money. It's everyday low prices when it comes to living standards around the world because of the um, diffusion of, of technologies, of business ideas, of better infrastructure, and so on. Here's the, by the way, the difference in infant mortality around the world. It used to be 89 more children per thousand born who died in middle-income countries. Today, it's 24. And that's, there's a convergence going on there that's, that we can see almost everywhere. A World Bank economist, uh, Charles Kenny, recently wrote a paper with a great title, Why Are We Worried About Income? Nearly everything that matters is converging around the world. Even if you don't grow richer, which we've seen all countries do, even if you don't, you'll see a convergence. He, Charles Kenny compared health, infrastructure, even beer production around the world, and uh, saw that how, it, how it converged in many instances. So even if globalization isn't the cause of all these trends, it has certainly facilitated so many of them by making it possible for an idea that someone comes up with somewhere to rapidly disseminate around the world. That's one of the, that's my, my major conclusion, how, how globalization has affected this. And what does that tell us? What does that say about our policies, what we do today? Well, it definitely tells us that what we do has, has important implications. We can see it with agricultural protectionism, how it has an, a definitely a strong and tragic impact around the world. But those countries, low- and middle-income countries, will also have a stronger effect on us in the future. They are getting richer. Uh, if present trends continues, they never do. Uh, but if they do, um, they might even be, be even more beneficial. Who knows? In 2030, the average developing country, in other words, the average poor country, will be as rich as the Czech Republic. And the middle-income countries like Mexico, Turkey, China, they will be about as rich as Spain is today. We will see more ideas, more technologies, more patents, more businesses coming from places like that. And they will begin to have a strong effect on what we are doing. In a way, it's a, another Copernican revolution. We are beginning to understand that we're not really the center of the world in the long run. Because if people get more freedoms, access to markets, they will also begin to get richer. So the big question when it comes to Western countries, the US, Sweden, is are we open to this process? We could see how many things converged around the world because poor countries could use the best ideas and technologies and businesses from here. Well, in the long run, our wealth will be dependent on whether we are open to the best ideas and technologies from over there and rapidly adapt to them, compete with them, and improve our own things. We will see more fierce competition in the future. It will seem more frightening. And the more frightening it looks, the more important is it that we are open to it, because otherwise someone else will use those technologies, those business models, and they will be the ones who, well, who run the world economy, who are able to export their goods and their services around the world. And it's also what's definitely necessary to make sure that um, the prices of everything that we need and want is, is being reduced as a proportion of, of our wages. 
especially in this election season in, um, in the U.S., I tend to see a lot of globalization bashing, a lot of, lot of dreams of uh, if only we didn't see that fierce, unfair competition from some other place, we would be able to lead our, our own, uh, own silent and quiet lives over here. Well, we will be able to do that for a while until, until someone else is better at everything we're doing because we weren't open to those processes. And in that case, we will be the ones to lose. The other major thing I think is important to think about in terms of policy implications is very different. It's about mental images. China, Turkey, and Mexico will be as rich as Spain is today. It's the average person there the GDP per capita in 2030. They will be superpowers. Now, what will their children learn about from their parents and in their textbooks in school about what we did when we were the superpowers? What will they think of us? Will they learn from their parents that, oh, yeah, the U.S. and the European Union, they really helped us along. They opened their markets. They made sure that we could export our goods. They were open to cooperation, technological uh, transitions that were positive for us as well. Or will they learn that the US and Sweden and the European Union did everything to try to stop this development that took place in our countries? They raised tariffs. They subsidized their industries, their agriculture, to try to stop us from getting rich. But we managed anyway. Well, if the latter is the case, I think the rise of the rest will be much, much more problematic in security terms, in human terms around the world, than if we have the first inhibition out there that we actually tried to make sure that everybody got richer. To sum up, it would be ironic indeed and a mistake of historic proportions if we in the West began to turn away from globalization at the precise moment that it is celebrating its greatest triumph around the world. The decades since 1960 have seen the greatest improvement of human living standards ever to take place. Extreme poverty, malnutrition, illiteracy, child labor, infant mortality, and the proportion lacking safe water around the world has been more than reduced, cut in half over this period, and life expectancy at birth has increased by four years in each decade. Technology and wealth have made it possible for an ever larger number of poor people around the world and sick people around the world to survive. And even so, the proportions of people who are poor or sick is declining. So we have probably seen even greater progress than these graphs reveal. The risk today that an individual will be exposed to war, die in a natural disaster, or be subjected to a dictatorship has become smaller than in any other era known to us. And moreover, people are more likely to reach retirement age today than their forebears were to reach their fifth birthday. The golden, the good old days are now. Thank you. Thank you.